Well, it's a pleasure to be with you all this morning. Uh, I have to confess that when I was, when I heard of this Dr. Jim Newman, I was momentarily wondering who that was, uh, having forgotten that that's actually me now. Uh, but I think that's the first time I've ever been introduced that way. Anyway, it's a pleasure to be with all of you this morning, and I've had the pleasure of teaching Sunday school here many times at Stonehill, but I always wondered whether I would ever get the opportunity to preach here. And so, here we are. I get the privilege this morning of wrapping up our six-week look at the book of Jonah. And if there's one thing that I've learned from this text, just one thing that I hope that you will also take away from Jonah this morning, it's this, that God is nicer than we are. Now, that's a simple thought, and maybe it seems overly simple, but I wonder how often we actually think of God in those terms. He's nicer than we are. He's a better lover than you are. He sees more worth in others than you do, and frankly, he sees more worth in you than you do. The depth and the breadth of God's compassion are entirely beyond our own and perhaps beyond our understanding even. But there are a few places in Scripture that illustrate for us so profoundly, so vividly, exactly how astoundingly compassionate God is, as this one does that we just heard read for us. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This one sentence summarizes for us the meaning of the entire book of Jonah in the same way, perhaps, that Tiny Tim's line at the end of A Christmas Carol, and God bless us, everyone, summarizes the entire message of Charles Dickens' novel, or we could think of other examples, too, perhaps. But if we really grasp what it is that God is saying to us through this sentence, it ought to make us bow in awe of his beauty and his goodness. It ought to change the way that we view others, and it ought to make us reconsider how God sees us. But like Jonah, we have to get there first. And Jonah is a long way from understanding God's compassion at the beginning of our passage. We begin in Jonah chapter 4, verse 5, with silence. Jonah's angry silence at God's decision to show compassion to Nineveh and to spare its inhabitants from destruction. Now, Pastor Tracy talked a good bit last week about the reasons for Jonah's anger. And in short, Jonah is actually anger, angry because of God's very character. He's angry because of God's grace and mercy. And this may seem like an odd thought to us, but basically the issue is this, that Jonah wants God to be a God who gives people what they deserve, when in reality, God is a God of grace and mercy who would rather see people change and forgive them than destroy anyone. God is nicer than Jonah. And so in the very moment when Jonah should be rejoicing over the repentance of some of the most wicked people on the face of the earth, instead he's angry. He's so angry that he can't even speak except to say that he would rather die. And in the midst of this whirlwind of Jonah's anger, God comes to him and gently questions him, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? But Jonah refuses to answer. He's silent. He's like a child who doesn't want to answer his parents' question because he knows he doesn't have a good answer. Instead, he walks off a little ways from the city, and he sets up a tent for himself from, from where he can watch to wait and see what's going to happen to the city next. In other words, he's still waiting 
to see Nineveh destroyed. And now, I don't know about you, but when I read this text, I have to wonder to myself, what's going on here? What is Jonah doing? Why is he still waiting to see what's going to happen? God's already given him his answer. He's already told him he's going to spare the city. So what's Jonah waiting for? Does he think that if he waits long enough, maybe God will change his mind? Does he think maybe the Ninevites will change theirs? They won't really repent after all, and they'll be destroyed anyway? Well, it's not really clear exactly what Jonah is thinking. But what is clear is this, that he is so bent on seeing these people get theirs, so to speak, that he flat out cannot accept that this is God's final answer. Jonah utterly lacks God's compassion to these people. Now, why is that? Well, it could be, for one thing, because the Ninevites really aren't nice people. Now, we've talked about this in previous weeks, but Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, whose brutality was storied throughout the ancient world. And what's more, they were constantly threatening Jonah's own people, Israel, with slavery and destruction and death. And now, because they've repented, because they've changed their ways, God offers them forgiveness. But Jonah's not interested in their forgiveness. He's not even interested in the repentance. Jonah is interested in seeing these people punished for the terrible things that they have done. And now, before we judge Jonah too harshly, let's pause for just a moment and ask ourselves, are we really any different? Imagine asking a Jew to accept God's compassion to an ex-Nazi after the Holocaust. Imagine asking Tutsis to accept God's compassion to repentant Hutus after the wrong the Rwandan genocide. Or for that matter, imagine God asking us to accept his compassion to those who have severely wronged us in our lives. Whether it was somebody who fired us from a job unjustly once upon a time, perhaps somebody who stole something from us, or somebody who did infinitely worse to us. If we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we have all known what it's like, what it feels like to want someone else to get what they really deserve. We, get to, we sometimes, too, just like Jonah, become so fixated on punishment that we forget that there's actually something better, which is change, which happens by grace and repentance. This morning, we probably came here thinking that we were better than Jonah, too, ready to judge Jonah, when in reality, we're all Jonahs who equally lack God's compassion and grace. Now, of course, it's also possible that Jonah is just a little bit of a bigot and that the reason why Jonah can't accept God's compassion to these people is simply because they're not Israelites. They're a foreign people with a foreign culture and practices that differ from his own. Any of these things are possible, and all of these things are possible. These aren't, these aren't mutual exclusives. But whatever the case may be, I can tell you one other definite reason why Jonah can't accept God's compassion to these people. It's because he thinks he's better than them. Now, make no mistake, Jonah is absolutely right about the fact that the Ninevites are terrible people. He's absolutely right about the terrible things that they have done. But the problem here is that he thinks that he is categorically better than they are. He thinks that he is somehow different. C.S. Lewis gives an illustration that I will always remember in his book, The Great Divorce. Lewis says, imagine that you or I have a bad temper, 
or perhaps a tendency toward lust or pride or some other sin. And right now it's not too noticeable. But imagine that the same sin then is given an entire, an entire eternity to grow unchecked by God's intervening grace, even the little daily graces that he puts in our lives to help restrain us from our own inherent sinfulness. What would we become? The man with a bad temper would become murderous. The prideful person would become a downright bigot. Lust would become rape. We too often forget that it's only God's intervening grace in the first place that keeps us from becoming these very things that we hate and others. And so again, we have this impulse, this childish sinful impulse inside us that makes us think that we're better than other people. So when I was about four or five years old, I remember that there was another kid in my class at church named Sean. And he was always, Sean was constantly throwing temper tantrums. He would throw his toys. He wouldn't share with other kids. He yelled at the other kids. He would yell at the teachers. He was impossible to get along with. And I remember that I used to get so annoyed and angry with this kid that one day with clenched teeth, I just said to myself, I hate this kid. I hate him. And why did I do this? I did this because I was convinced that I was better than him. Of course, I was conveniently oblivious all the while to the fact that I was seething with hate here and behaving just as disgustingly as he was. My heart was just as ugly as his. And the problem is that many of us never really outgrow this childish, sinful impulse to think that we're better than others. We do a better job of hiding it, including from ourselves, or we may learn to phrase it more nicely, but many of us go on thinking that we're better than someone somewhere else for one reason or another, when in reality we should be just as offended by our own sin as we are by theirs. And so when it comes down to it, we are all Jonas who lack God's compassion as Jonah does. And so here's a question that scripture asks of us today. Who do we not want to see in the church? It may be someone who wronged us once upon a time. There may be certain sins that offend us so deeply that we find them absolutely inexcusable. Or for that matter, it may be be people who haven't directly harmed us at all. It may be liberals or conservatives or uh, people who have different ideologies than our own. It may be the gay community. It may just be people who think, dress, and act differently than we do. But are there people in the world or even in our own communities that we would rather see get what they deserve than receive the grace of God in Jesus Christ? That's the question that faces us in this text, just like Jonah. So how does God respond to all of this? Well, amazingly, we find in verses 6 through 9, God responds to Jonah's lack of compassion with even more compassion of his own. And through this compassion, he's about to break through the ice of Jonah's heart and show him how he sees the Ninevites. In verses 6 through 9, we see that God first appoints a plant to grow up over Jonah to give him shade, to save him from his discomfort, the text says, or literally, as the Hebrew has it, his evil, to save him from his evil. And naturally, we read, Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But let's stop and notice something real quick here. 
Jonah's reaction here is exactly the opposite of his reaction to God's compassion toward the Ninevites in verse 1. If we went back and read verse 1, which we read last week, we would see that God's compassion to the Ninevites displeased Jonah exceedingly. But now here in verse 6, when God's compassion is directed toward him, he's exceedingly glad because of it. The words in the Hebrew are exactly the opposite expression. So there's a disparity here between how Jonah feels about God's compassion toward Nineveh, how he feels about God's compassion toward himself. Okay, but let's go on. The very next day, just as quickly as God appoints the plant for Jonah, he appoints a worm to attack it and kill it. And in place of the plant, God sends a scorching east wind that leaves Jonah so miserable that once again, he's in the place of asking God to take his life. Now, do we see what's happened here? Do we see what God has done? Essentially, he's performed a parable on Jonah. He's played a parable on him as a way of doing some heart surgery. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, just as Jesus sometimes teaches in parables in the New Testament, we find that God sometimes teaches us by creating real-life parables out of our real-life circumstances and making us the characters in the middle. And that's basically what he does to Jonah here. First, he shows compassion to Jonah, and then he removes it just as quickly in order to give Jonah a taste, a quick taste, of what life would be like without God's compassion. And it's unbearable. And in this way, he teaches Jonah first that he needs God's compassion just as much as anyone else. And he also exposes him. Because you see, Jonah thinks that he wants a God who gives people what they deserve. But does he really? Not when it's him, it turns out, because it turns out that his life and his comfort in life are just as dependent on God's compassion as anyone else's. But that's not even the whole of it yet. See, like every good parable, this one, too, has a twist that holds all the meaning. So look with me at what Jonah says in verse 8. It is better for me to die than to live. Now, we've heard these words before. This is exactly what Jonah had said about God's compassion to the Ninevites back in verse 3. It is better for me to die than to live. And then look at God's response in verse 9. In response to Jonah's repeated complaint, God turns around and repeats his own question back to Jonah, essentially, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Do you do well to be angry? And this time, Jonah responds emphatically in no uncertain terms. Yes, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. He's angry because God has taken away this plant that was so beautiful to him, that meant so much to him because of the comfort that it gave him. And, and so now here's the twist. In the first instance, Jonah is angry because of God's mercy. But in the second instance, he's angry because of God's lack of compassion on the plant. So do you see the reversal here? Do you see what's happened? God has flipped Jonah's complaint on its head. First, Jonah's angry at God for not being merciful. Now he's, or first he's angry at him for being merciful. Now he's angry at him for not being merciful. So what's the point? What's the point of all this? The point, God says in verses 10 through 11, is that you, Jonah, care so much about this plant that you did nothing for but you don't think that I'm supposed to care about a whole city full of people that I created? Look, Jonah, if you can feel that much compassion for a plant, what do you think I'm supposed to feel about 120,000 people that I created 
Am I not supposed to care about them? Look, you didn't bring that plant into existence. You did nothing to care for it. It was literally a plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not, do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? And so there we have it, the punchline of the entire book of Jonah. If you know the meaning of this sentence, then you know the entire purpose for which this story was told. You see, where you or I see horrible people, God sees babies who need compassion. Let's take a closer look real quick at what God is saying in this final verse. Commentators, both ancient and modern, have uh, often noted that this expression, do not know their right hand from their left, is a typical Hebrew idiom that basically means they don't know right from wrong. You don't know your right hand from your left. You don't know right from wrong. But there's also something else going on here, something that most modern commentators have missed. You see, if you go back and you read ancient commentators, you find that most ancient commentators regularly point out, both the church fathers and ancient Jewish rabbis, that this is also an ancient way of characterizing infants. After all, who doesn't know their right hand from their left? Infants, babies. Who doesn't know right from wrong? Babies. And so, do we see now what it is that God is really saying here to Jonah? He's saying, should I not pity that city full of 120,000 of my babies who don't know what they're doing and need, need to be parented? He's saying to Jonah, you're that upset about a plant that you did nothing for, but these are my babies. They're my babies, Jonah, and they're destroying themselves in sin because they don't know me. They don't know right from wrong, and, and you want me to kill them? How am I not supposed to have compassion? How am I not supposed to pity my own children, Jonah? And this is what's so remarkable about this verse, what God is saying about the Ninevites. Let's not forget who these people are. These are some of the world's worst. They are guilty. They're guilty of brutality. They're guilty of oppression and trampling all over others. But now here's God pleading with Jonah, pleading with his own prophet on their behalf, saying, Jonah, don't you see they need my help. And so again, where you or I see horrible people, God sees babies. A couple years ago, I was driving just off of Route 1 here in Princeton. And a car pulled out in front of me and cut me off in traffic. And then, and then the driver of the car flipped me off as though I had done something wrong to him. Now... Needless to say, I was a bit aggravated by this experience. And uh, whatever the first reaction was, and my, whatever my first characterization of this person was that went through my head, I can assure you that it wasn't so kind or compassionate as, you know, he's just a, a child uh, of God, Jim, who doesn't know any better and, and needs God's love. No, it wasn't quite that kind. But a moment later, God brought this very verse to my mind, as if to say to me, that is one of my children, Jim, created in my image too, just like you are. And he doesn't know what he's doing, and he needs help, he needs love, he needs me, and you're called to show him that love, so pray for him. And so I began to ask myself, what happened to that person in the first place anyway to make him act like that? 
you know, if somebody feels the need to cut me off in traffic and then flip me off about it, I'm going to assume that that person is having a worse day than I am. I'm going to assume that maybe that person is even having a worse life than I am. Who knows what he's experienced and who knows maybe he really doesn't know his right hand from his left. And if all of this seems a little far-fetched to us, remember, this is almost exactly what Jesus says from the cross about the people who put him there in Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And so then I began to think further, what would happen if I prayed for every person who treated me this way? What would happen if prayer, rather than judgment, was my knee-jerk response to this kind of behavior? Would it make any difference? If I have any belief in the power of prayer at all, I have to say yes. And so I also want to say to you this morning, pray for those who offend you. Pray for those that you are least inclined to pray for. Pray for God's compassion and goodness in their lives. Pray that his kindness will indeed lead them to repentance. Now I want you to do something for me. Think back to the person that you're not sure that you want to sit next to in church. Think back to those that you've seen on the news that you'd rather see get what they deserve than receive grace. But now if you're a parent, picture your own children. If you're not a parent, picture your brother or sister as a child, or picture a niece or a nephew, or picture yourself as a child. And now you're just beginning to see what God sees when he looks at that person. There's a song by U2 that came out when I was in high school called When I Look at the World. And the song reaches its climax with this line, I can't wait any longer to see what you see when you look at the world. And for some time now, this has become my own prayer. Lord, help me to see what you see when I look at the world. I need this prayer. Jonah needed this prayer. We all need this prayer because this is what we so often lack. We fail to see others as God sees them, as wayward children who need help, who need his compassion. And by the way, that's also how he sees you. The Ninevites aren't the last to receive God's compassion in this story. Jonah is. After all, why does God bother with Jonah in the first place? Why does he call him? Why does he... Uh, Why does he appoint a fish to swallow him, to save him from drowning in the sea? Why does he then cause the fish to spit him out on the shores of dry land again? Why does he give him a second chance? Why did he go to the trouble of raising up a plant to save him from his discomfort? Why does he then go to the trouble of this whole parable to teach Jonah one more time? It's not because Jonah's deserving. Look, Jonah is a terrible, disobedient pompous prophet who would like to pop himself some popcorn while he watches 120,000 people die. He's not exactly your picture of a good and faithful servant. But God shows compassion to him because he sees Jonah too as a child who tragically doesn't understand and who needs his help. And he sees you and I the same way as well. We are all equally undeserving children who need compassion, and God is universally ready to embrace us as wayward children. So as we conclude, I'd like to offer three ways 
in which we can respond to these truths. First of all, thank God. Thank God that he truly does have compassion on the undeserving because that means us and this is precisely the good news that we need. Thank God that as Paul says in Romans, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we we were yet undeserving enemies of God, Christ died for us. This is the ultimate picture of God's deep compassion on the undeserving. And without it, if God doesn't have compassion on the undeserving, then there is no good news that actually does any good at all. Secondly, if God shows this kind of deep compassion to the undeserving, so should we. And this has to start within our own home, within our own walls. This has to start here. We can't afford to bicker or squabble with each other uh, over differences of opinion. We can't afford to dismiss one another or disparage one one another, no matter how trying the circumstances of the day are, because we're called to love one another. And we have to remember that we are equally undeserving children of God who have also equally been embraced by him in love. And if we can't show compassion toward one another within our own walls, how will we ever show it to people who are outside of these walls? How will we ever be the church that Jesus Christ called us to be? And lastly, if you're listening today and you're not a believer, if you think you might even be a Ninevite, know that to God you're much more. To him you're a child that he's waiting to embrace. The message of Jonah is ultimately a preview of the gospel itself. That Christ, that while we were yet sinners, while we were undeserving enemies of God, Christ died for us. The gospel was never about how nice you are. It has always been about the fact that God is nicer than you are. There's a place for you in his house, and there's a place for you in this church. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we do indeed thank you. We bow before you in all of your beauty and your goodness that you would have compassion, that you were able to see the beauty in ugly things, that you were able to see the beauty in us, you were able to see the beauty in those in whom no one else sees beauty. If it weren't for that, we wouldn't be here, and we would have no hope. So we pray, Lord, fill us with your compassion. Break our hearts for all those around us. Help us to see truly what you see when you look at the world. We pray these things in the loving name of Jesus Christ. Amen.